All right, well, everyone, welcome to Gospel of Grace. We're going to start in our Sunday school here. As you can see, we're back looking at Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia. We're in part two. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, and Lord, that we can trust in you even during dark times. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the great promises that you've given to the church here that we read about to your address to the church in Philadelphia, that we would take these things to heart, that they would be an encouragement for us as we so often fall short and as we deal with persecution in a world that's increasingly hostile to you and to your people. I ask that this would be an encouragement that would enable us to persevere and live godly lives. Help us to think well upon the text here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're in part two. Now, remember when we had left off, we were talking about verse 10, Revelation 3.10, and I just gave you a snidbit of it here, where Jesus had given this great promise. He says, because you have kept the word, remember there was a play on words, you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. The hour, of course, that comes upon the whole world. And what we had defined was what was being talked about and promised here is that if 70th, the 70th week of Daniel is that great hour of testing, we are being promised preservation from it. Okay, preservation on the outside. So think about this timeline. You and I are living here during the church age, and we're moving closer and closer every day, every minute, to the breaking forth of Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years. When does it come? We don't know. But what we do know is that we're going to be preserved on the outside of it. We're not going to enter in. That's the nature of the promise in Revelation 3.10. Now, what I want you to do is, remember we had talked about Isaiah 26? We talked about how in Isaiah 26, and let me give you the exact verses, verses 17 through 20. Do you remember, that was a basic outline of New Testament eschatology. Because in Isaiah 26, you see that there's going to be a resurrection of the people of God, they're going to be carried to their rooms and hidden while the wrath of God is poured out upon the world during the day of the Lord. And lo and behold, that's the exact thing that John is teaching here in Revelation 3.10. Now, let me turn to some other text with you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. I just want you to see that this concept of being exempt from the wrath of God isn't just found in a few verses, it's found in many. Now, remember, as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians is a very important book for the discussion about being exempt from the wrath of God. Why? Well, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul talks about the rapture of the church. And that's the means, I believe, by which we are preserved or kept on the outside of God's wrath that we never enter in. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Three chapters earlier, he is giving kudos to the church at Thessalonica for their faith. And in verse 10, he says that they were the ones who were waiting for his son from heaven. He says, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, remember, just three chapters later, or I'm sorry, four chapters later, you're talking about the wrath when in the day of the Lord. So in context, that fits very nicely. Fast forward, in fact, Four chapters. Fast forward to 1 Thessalonians 5 9. 1 Thessalonians 5 9. Remember the context in verse 2 and 3 was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, we don't know when it's going to break forth. According to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, the day of the Lord's purpose is to pour wrath upon unbelievers but save believers. In fact, God says that he would exterminate sinners from the earth. So the day of the Lord is the time of his wrath. And so in context, when we look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, when he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, we should be preconditioned to see in that not just a promise to be exempt from the lake of fire, but having been saved from all of God's wrath, namely the day of the Lord. Is everybody with me? In fact, think about how many verses earlier, about 10, 11 verses earlier, what's the discussion? The rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. So 
Notice how all those things are tied into. Now, turn your Bibles one more time. Turn it to Luke 17. I think this is very devastating. What I'm showing you is that a case can be made that all over the scriptures, God is promising his people exemption from this coming day of wrath. And the reason we want to focus on this now is because now is the time in a Sunday school to look at all the details. Luke 17, 27 through 29. Talking about Noah's day, Jesus likens this future time of judgment to Noah's day. He says they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. Now let's stop there. That's Luke 17, 27. Why does Jesus say that? He says life is going on as it always was. They were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage. Life was going on. There was nothing to tip them off that anything was out of the ordinary. He says, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, who was Noah? Well, he and his family, there was eight total, were the righteous ones who believed in the promises of God. They were believers. And so notice, they're taken out of the way. And then what happens? It says the flood came and destroyed them all. So the people of God are removed. Then the wrath of God came. Now, Jesus isn't just done with that. Notice he goes on into verse 28 through 29. He says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. So life was going on as it always had in Sodom and Gomorrah. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So Lot, the righteous, who was a believer, is removed, then the wrath of God came. So what I'm showing you is place after place in the scriptures, we're seeing this exact concept being taught. Isaiah 26, Luke 17, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and we could go on. All right? So that's certainly being kept or taught. Now, let me point out some possible objections to this doctrine. And I will take any questions at any time if anyone has anything. But what I want to do is handle possible objections to this teaching. Number one... Some have claimed that the promise only applied to the church in Philadelphia. In other words, this promise to be kept from the hour of trial, some will claim, look, that was a promise that was given to the church in Philadelphia, but it's certainly not a promise that extends to all Christians. And typically the reasoning goes like this. They will say, look, there was a church that was faithful, the church in Smyrna, in Revelation chapter 2. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, they were told that they were going to go through 10 days of tribulation, that Satan was going to cast them into 10 days of tribulation. So if that church has promised that, why does that tribulation not apply to all of us? Right? If that, why is that not a universal promise? Now here's the answer to that. How many have ever heard of a tribulation that lasts 10 days? I think we take that literally. Well, of course, that has to be a local tribulation. Now, the hour of trial that's being discussed here in Revelation 3.10, remember if you finish the rest of the verse, the hour of trial obviously is more than 60 minutes because it's referring to the time period in which a trial will come upon the whole inhabited earth. Okay? Now, what time period is that in Scripture? It's the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, we know, is a broad period of time. So, Revelation 3.10 is talking about this universal judgment and I think we should all agree that universally, Christians, you're not going to have one group of Christians that are exempt and another Christians that are not from the wrath of God. Okay? So when we're comparing the church in Smyrna to Philadelphia, we're comparing apples and oranges. Smyrna's promise was a local tribulation. It was a specific issue for them. But in Revelation chapter 3, when we're talking about Philadelphia, we're talking about a universal judgment that applies to all Christians. That would be my answer to that. Okay, now, number two, let me give you another possible objection. The hour of testing is something less than the full 70th week of Daniel. So notice the hour of testing talked about right here. Some will claim that it's not the full 70th week, the last seven years. In particular, mid-trib proponents and pre-wrath proponents will say, no, it's the last three and a half. So from the beginning of Daniel's 70th week until here is the wrath of man they would argue, but it's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes at the great tribulation. Okay, now let me give you a couple of major problems with their proposal of that solution. First of all, remember when we saw Jesus teaching in the Olivet Discourse, and he talked about wars and rumors of wars, and he talked about famines? He says, these are the beginning of birth pangs. 
It's universally agreed that the beginning of birth pangs is referring to the events at the beginning of the 70th week. If you read a pre-wrath scholar, a mid-trib scholar, they will agree to that. Now, the reason that's important is because, remember, I showed you that when Jesus is talking about the beginning of birth pangs, that is parallel to the first four seals in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 8, remember at the fourth seal, you have these wars that Jesus was alluding to. And it says that the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast kill how many people on the planet? A quarter of the earth's population. Okay? Well, when is that happening? Well, that's in the beginning of the 70th week. All right? Now, when you, if, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel 14, 21. Now, I don't have this memorized. In fact, be, begin in verse 19. Uh, Ezekiel 14, 19. In fact, Brian, if you wouldn't mind reading that passage, that'd be great. Just start in verse 19 and read through 21. I want you to see that is, by the way, before you read this, God had promised back in Deuteronomy 28. Remember, God gives blessings and curses to Israel. If they're faithful to covenant, he gives them blessings. At Mount Gerizim, they learn that there are also going to be cursings if they don't obey. And that's found in Deuteronomy 28. Well, God promised that his, if his people were unfaithful, he would send four things upon them. Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Well, in Ezekiel 14, God is faithful to that word. Judah was unfaithful to the covenant. They were not believing. And therefore, God sends them those four things. Now, read in verse 19, Brian. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God. They could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Continue. Right. And yeah, and keep going all the way. So let's just stop there. Was that verse 19? That was uh, 1920. 19 and 20. Notice in verse 19, he talks about plague, and he calls it the wrath. Well, that plague, the same term is used now in, down in verse 21. But in verse 21, notice there's three other things, sword, famine, which is death, and plague, and then wild bees. Okay? Well, if it's the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14... Why is it not the wrath of God here? That's what's being poured out at the fourth seal. So do you see how if it's the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14, why is it no longer the wrath of God when it comes upon the whole world? You see, remember in the 70th week, God is reversing his judgments no longer on Israel per se. He's now shifting his judgment upon the whole world. It's the testing that comes upon the whole world, it says, to test those who dwell upon the earth, that is unbelievers, to show that they're not genuine that they don't belong to him. Does that make sense? So if it's the wrath of God in the Old Testament, now some people will say, well, it's only the wrath of nations. Does God not use the nations sovereignly for his purposes? Isaiah chapter 10, you can just jot, jot this down. Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 6, God says that he uses Assyria as the vessel of his wrath. So certainly God is sovereign and uses the nations as instruments of his wrath. That's what Revelation chapter 17, verse 17 says, God will use the nations to accomplish his purposes, those who even give allegiance to the beast, the Antichrist. Okay? Now, the other problem with this view that somehow the wrath of God doesn't begin to the midpoint is think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. In that passage, Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety sudden destruction comes upon them. Let me ask you, if in fact this warfare happens, which is universally agreed, that leads to a death of a quarter of the earth's population, would you be saying peace and safety here? Would the earth's population being say, would they be saying peace and safety? Is it sudden destruction after you've seen all those signs? No. The only way you'd be saying peace and safety, remember, World War II, we lost 4% of the world's population. So that warfare that we're looking at is more than six times worse than anything we've ever experienced. Would people be saying peace and safety? And it's not they're wishing for it. They're declaring that they have it. Just like it was stated in Luke 17. They were eating, drinking, given in marriage. Life was going on as it always had. In fact, when Jesus is talking about those in Sodom, they were planting, they were building. Life was always going on as it always has, and sudden destruction came upon them. 
Are you going to be having life as it always was after you lose a quarter of the earth's population? Of course not. So that means that the day of the Lord and therefore wrath has to begin at the beginning of the 70th week. Okay? All right, so there's more to that, and we'll come to this later when we get to Revelation chapter 6, but I think that's a good rebuttal to that. Third objection, the, the church is kept through the hour of testing. We examined that last week. So the idea behind some scholars is that the keep and from should be rendered keep through. And the idea then is we'd be kept through the church through the 70th week, that God would enable us to persevere. What was the problem with that? Well, we said the preposition, if God meant to be kept through, he would have used the preposition dia or perhaps ace or n, but he certainly would not use ek, which is translated from. So it's a no-go. Number three is just is it an option. Okay, now the fourth option was that the church is kept by being taken out of the hour. So that would be the idea of the post-tribbers who say, well, yes, we're in the tribulation, but at the very end, we're taken out from the midst of it. But remember, we showed last week that every time this combination of tereo, the verb, and ek, the preposition, is used, it talks about preservation on the outside. Not from the inside out, but preservation on the outside, so you cannot enter into that time period. And so it's devastating. So I think that the possible objections to the understanding that we're really exempt from the 70th week, which is God's wrath, I don't think that they hold water. Okay? Now, what I want to do is move on now to verse 11, because I'm going to show you now that our promise to be kept from the hour of testing is intricately linked to the coming of Christ in verse 11, ironically. All right, now notice here in Revelation 3, 10 through 11, Jesus goes on to say, because you have kept the word here, I guess we've already read this, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now here's the new verse. I am coming quickly. Behold, I'm sorry, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. I am coming quickly. Notice that is in conjunction with the hour of trial. The hour of trial that comes upon the whole world is in conjunction with the coming of Christ. They're intricately linked. The same is true, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, talks about the rapture. When you get to chapter 5, the very next verse, it talks about the day of the Lord, this hour of trial. They're intricately linked. All right? Now, also notice in verse 11, he says, I'm coming quickly. The term quickly here is an adverb. And if I were to write my own version of the Bible, the Eric Dauma version, EDV, <laughs> it would have the term imminently. Because this adverb, tacus, has to do, not that Jesus sprints quickly, that he runs the 40-yard dash in under two seconds, which I'm sure he could. He's all-powerful. But it's the idea that it's imminent that is coming is at hand. Now, how do we know that? Well, remember, that very same term was used to build the whole book of Revelation. Revelation 1.1, it forms the bookends. Revelation 1.1, now I know I've said this ad nauseum, but Revelation 1.1 was built off of Daniel 2.28. Revelation 1.1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must take place soon. Soon is the noun form of takus, the adverb. They're identical. This is a noun, though, and this is an adverb. Otherwise, they're identical. Now, why is that important? Well, remember, Revelation 1.1 was built off of Daniel 2.28. Daniel 2.28, the promise that these things were the things that must take place in the last days. Well, now, no longer are they in the last days. They're soon. They're at hand. Why? Because we're living in the last days. The first advent of Christ ushered them in. Well, lo and behold, the bookends of Revelation, Revelation 22, 20, at the very end, the same adverb is used. He who testifies of these things says, yes, that's Jesus. I am coming quickly. Same adverb that's used here. So the whole book of Revelation, and by the way, it says, amen, come Lord Jesus. That should be our response. The whole book of Revelation is built on the doctrine of imminence. Okay, so now follow the logic here. Let's go back up to verse 10. Notice, talking about the hour of testing, the hour of testing is imminent. Why? 
because of the verb here, it's actually a participle form of mellow. The hour of testing is about to come. It's imminent. It's at hand. But what else is imminent? Jesus coming. He's coming quickly. So the hour of testing is at hand, and Jesus' coming is at hand. And so therefore, you have to say that Jesus' coming is associated with this hour of testing. Right now, because Jesus' coming and the hour of testing is at hand, what should be our reaction? Well, he tells us, therefore, what? Hold fast to what you have. The imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ should motivate us to godly living. That you and I want to hold fast to the word of God. We don't want to depart from the doctrines of the faith or start living as if we were unbelievers. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Why did they choose the fruit? At the end of the day, is because they didn't believe. If they had believed God's word over Satan's temptation, they wouldn't have eaten. You act on what you believe. Right? Think about the guy who, I've used this analogy many times, but he used to go over Niagara Falls, the story, the legend goes, on a tightrope, and he had a wheelbarrow. And he'd ask people, how many think that I can go across Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow on this tightrope? And people would clap, yes, we believe it. And then he'd say, well, get in. Who wants to get in? And all of a sudden, everybody says, wow, I got a pot roast in the, <laughs> right, in the oven, and I'm, they don't want any part of it. So the whole point is when we hold fast, we're holding to the doctrines of the faith, but we're also living accordingly so that no one will what, take your crown. The crown is just a symbol of our reward. The major crown that we receive, the reward is eternal life. Hold fast. The majority of the population of the world rejects Christ's word. And the battle in life, the major battle that we must win is to answer affirmatively when the question is asked, has God said? Has God said that? And we have to say, yes, he has. Has God said that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ? Yes. That's exactly what he said. Okay, so that's, that's the whole motivation. So what's interesting to me is if I were to summarize the entire book of Revelation on one slide, here it is. You have an hour of testing that's about to come upon the world. It coincides with the coming of Christ. Therefore, what? Hold fast. Don't give up. No matter how dark it is, don't give up. Don't make yourself a practical atheist by living in rebellion to God. Because if you really believe the promises, you'll persevere. And that's the message for us, to keep on persevering. So think about this. As Bob's been teaching us the means of grace, the means of grace are designed to put the promises of God in front of our face. And this is a major promise, right? That's what the Word of God does. Daniel's got a question or comment. in connection with running the race? You know, um, not necessarily in this context. The running the race metaphor would have been very important to the people in Philadelphia because they were aware of the the different games that would occur in the arena. But the race metaphor is really for all of life here and now. So you and I are depicted then as Christians who are running this race of our life. And the idea is, We want to finish as victors. And the way that we remain as victors or overcomers is by being in Christ. Okay? So that means faith in him and obviously obedience that demonstrates we really believe. Okay? So if someone claimed to believe and they never lived, I mean, they just were completely disobedient their whole lives, you would say, well, did they really ever believe? It would be that sort of idea. Yep. Does that make sense? So yeah, so the hour of testing in some sense is unrelated to this. When he talks about running the race, or this idea of holding fast that no one will take your crown, I think you're right. It's a race metaphor or a games metaphor, but it's more now at the end of the verse 11 looking at our entire life, here and now. Let no one steal it from you, meaning you're not disqualified from it. So great question. Thank you. Yep. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to keep moving then because I want to show you this great promise, the promise to have God's name. I love this. Revelation 3.12, he goes on to say, this is a promise, right, from Jesus, he who overcomes. Now, let me just stop there. Bless your pastor. What does it mean to be an overcomer? 1 John 5.5, who is it that overcomes? 
but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So this doesn't mean that you have to crawl up the wall of salvation, that you somehow are going to work for your salvation. This means you're a believer in Jesus. Okay? You're an overcomer. So he says, I will make him, this is the promise to believers then, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, what I want you to take notice of here is notice this promise at the beginning. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What is so beautiful in the book of Revelation is when you get to chapter 21, the new Jerusalem comes down and the entire new Jerusalem is depicted as the temple of God. Now, some of you who like architecture, maybe you're going to be disappointed to say, well, I want to see a real temple. Trust me, the new Jerusalem will do it. It's going to be amazing. And that's the temple of God. And so notice, who are the pillars within the temple of God? You and I are. And the reason the pillar metaphor is being used is because pillars, as you've noticed in these magnificent cathedrals, are not something that people move willy-nilly. They're permanent. In fact, he reiterates it. He says, and they will not go out from it anymore. You and I will never be in the position like Cain was, who was banished from the presence of God in the book of Genesis. You and I, because of our faithfulness, will always be with him. Never to be asked to leave because we weren't good enough, because we're going to have a glorified body. No longer will we sin against our Lord. We'll always be in his presence. Now, notice the other promise. There's three of them. He's going to give the name, he says, of my God. That's the name of Yahweh. We're going to be given that name. Now, I'm going to link this in the next few slides with the idea of not blaspheming God's name. You and I are going to really represent him as representatives who don't sin and blaspheme his name. That's a wonderful promise. Also, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That means we belong there. We have the name of the the city of the New Jerusalem written upon us, and then there's a new name that Christ gives us, which is a name that connotates the idea that you and I are really the new creatures that he's created us to be. The old things have passed away. These are wonderful promises. And brothers and sisters, Revelation 3.12 that you see before you is the culmination and the answer to the prayer that Daniel had prayed in Daniel chapter 9. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is absolutely consumed and concerned for God's glory. The problem with Israel is that they had taken the name of God upon themselves and they lived in a certain way, a sinful way, that brought disrepute upon his name. Now remember, you and I in America, we take a name... And we call our children names often because we like the way they sound. Or we know that the name won't lead to having a kick-me sticker when they get to kindergarten, right? Like Aloysius or something like that. The kid would be the last picked on the football team every time, right? Um, There was a joke that one guy says, yeah, his name was Nick. He says, I don't know, my dad thought of it while he was shaving. I don't know, right? (laughs) But the point is, in the ancient Near East, a name meant It had to do with your reputation. It had to do with your character. And so in a sense then, Adam and Eve at the very beginning, they took upon themselves the name of God. Why? Because they were built in his image. In that they rebelled. And from then on, men and women have never represented his name correctly. And I'll show you in the next slide that's really a violation of the third commandment. So here, look at Daniel's prayer. This is the culmination of his prayer. Daniel 9.19 He says, listen to the fervor. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. And they were deficient. And truth be told, yes, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And without that, we'd all be deficient too. But the great promise in Revelation 3.12 is it will be remedied. It's going to be answered. So let's talk then about the third commandment. Let's talk first of all, before I put up the third commandment, let's talk about how the name relates to glory. You and I take upon ourselves the name of God, Christian, when we become believers. 
and the idea is that we would live in such a way that we bring glory to God. Now, the term glory in Hebrew is kavoth. Kavoth. And I love that term because at the basic root of kavoth is the idea of weightiness. When you think of the glory of God, there's one concept that I want you to remember the rest of your life. It's weightiness. Think about what that means. You and I maybe use the term gravitas. Think about if someone you love and adore and you want nothing but good things for them, wouldn't you love it if they came in the door and everyone went, oh my, what's he going to say? They have gravitas. And so there's a longing for all of us as believers that day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because he gets the gravitas, the wow that he deserves, the weightiness. That's the idea of the glory of God, that he is seen as weighty, significant, beautiful, good, all of those things wrapped into who he is. He gets the weightiness that he deserves. Now, in the third commandment, remember the Ten Commandments, the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7, says this. And it's directly related to the glory of God. Israel took the name of God, and they brought disrepute upon it. Exodus 20, verse 7. God said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord, that's Yahweh, will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, let's talk about this term, take. And the term take there is, think of the term NASA, okay? In Hebrew, it's NASA. Think of lifting up. Doesn't NASA lift up rockets? And Well, they used to. Now they're just, what, trying to make friends with Muslims? <laughs> well, NASA in its good old days. Think of that. NASA, they lift up. So the idea here that most scholars have is that taking up would be lifting up God's name upon your lips. And so the prohibition here would be from taking an oath, and by the way, that's what Bob was warning about in the New Testament, right, where Jesus and James were warning about taking oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But the idea would be taking an oath in the name of Yahweh and then breaking it, using his name in vain. Or some scholars think it also has to do with using his name inappropriately, which isn't necessarily, you know, exclusive from the other. That would be using his name as a profanity. Now, I think certainly those things are incorporated here in the third commandment, but here's what I would suggest to you. The primary meaning, I believe, of the third commandment is that you and I bear God's name, that we take it upon ourselves, and therefore it's incumbent upon us to live lives that bring him glory. So to me, Nasa has to do with bearing, the idea that we're his representatives. Now, let me turn to some texts that I think support this understanding of Nasa, the verb for take. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 28.12. Exodus 28.12, what you're going to see here as you turn to it is Aaron is going to represent Israel. Remember, he's their high priest, right? And he's going to go into the Holy of Holies. And he's going to represent the people. So as you turn to Exodus 28.12, he's going to have these two stones in his ephod, his breastplate. And those stones are going to have engraved upon them the names of Israel, probably the tribes, the names of the tribes, perhaps uh, six on each of them if they're multiple stones, two of them, all right? So Exodus twenty eight twelve, he says, you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear, there's Nassah, their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for a memorial, Aaron is Nassah. He is bearing the name of Israel upon himself. He's representing them before God. That's the very same term that's used here for take, to bear, to represent the name. The names of Israel, I think it applies here. You shall not represent or bear the name of Yahweh. Now, skip down to verse 29 of Exodus 28. It says the same thing. Exodus 28, 29 says, Aaron shall carry, there's Nassah, the names of the sons of Israel in the breast, piece of, the breast piece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord. Again, shall carry, Nassah, he's bearing their names. All right? Now, turn to one more place, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.22. Leviticus 16.22, remember, you have two animals. You have a bull and a goat. 
Remember the one, well, you have multiple goats, but remember the one goat, what is he? He is the scapegoat, and he's brought out into the wilderness. And so the sins of the people were placed upon it, and he takes the sins and he removes them from the people. That's a picture of expiation, that God removes our sins from us when we trust in Jesus Christ. Our sins are removed. So notice what it says in Leviticus 16.22. It says, The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. The goat shall bear, shall bear, Nassah. So he's their representative who vicariously takes their sins away. So my point in this is to show you clearly take that I have in the square before you has the idea of bearing. In fact, some of your versions may say that you shall not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. Now, what was the problem? The problem was Israel, time after time, they would end up sinning and bringing disrepute on God's name. In fact, Paul says this, uh, Bob was talking about this passage with me this week, and he had pointed out this Romans 2.24. It's a great catch. Romans 2.24, Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed, among the Gentiles because of you. So they brought disrespect upon God's name. They didn't lend to his kavoth, his weightiness. They detracted from it. They bore his name in vain. They lived no differently than the pagan world. So Daniel is praying that that would be reversed. And so then we get the answer. Yes. Who is the the you? Oh, I'm sorry, Israel. Yep, thank you. Good question. Uh, The question was, what was the you in Romans 2.24? The you is Israel. They brought disrepute upon God's name. Now, there are several passages that this alludes to. One is in Isaiah, but I think the primary reference is Ezekiel 36.20. Now, the reason Ezekiel 36 should snap us to attention when we see that reference is because of the new covenant. The new covenant is the remedy to the question, how is God's name going to be made holy? among the people, okay, considered glorious. So listen to what God says, Ezekiel 36, 20, here's the remedy. When they came, or I'm sorry, this is the problem. He says, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. So notice the people of God being out of the land is a big problem. Why were they out of the land? Because they disobeyed. Now, why did they disobey? Because they didn't believe. So it's a battle to believe, isn't it? That's what Bob has been teaching us about the means of grace. It's a battle to believe. If you believe, you obey. And if you obey, you wouldn't be kicked out of the land. That's the, the logic there. So they brought disrespect upon God's name. They profaned it. And he didn't have the kavoth, the weightiness that he should have. So what's the remedy then? Now here's the new covenant. This is so beautiful. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 24. God says this. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, this is the beginning of the new covenant. Okay, now notice the promise here. He says, I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Why is that so exciting or should be exciting to us? Because this is part of the new covenant. In the very next verse, it's universally agreed when we get to Ezekiel 36, 25. If you look at any Reformed pastor, Reformed theologian, they'll say, yep, there's the new covenant. But what I'm going to show you is notice it says, I will gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. That's directly connected grammatically to verse 25. I'll show you. And so this is a new covenant promise as well. Okay, let me just talk about a book that I had read recently. Louis Burkhoff, how many have ever heard of him? He was a Reformed theologian who wrote a very important systematic theology. In 1939, he had finished the work, I believe, it was, I think it was 1939, and in his section on the Millennial Kingdom, 
he says it's not necessary for Israel to ever come back into their land, and we should not expect that that would ever happen. He says, we understand that these things are spiritually fulfilled in the church. Well, just if he would have waited to write, nine years later, they came back into their land, okay? Now, I think at the end of the day, this is referring to the great ingathering that Jesus refers to at his coming, when he says he will gather the elect with the great trumpet from the four winds. That'll be the ultimate fulfillment of it. But the point is, gathering Israel back into the land, that's a new covenant promise too. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice here, when we go on to verse 25, we have a discourse marker. Now, let me talk about discourse markers. In Hebrew, they don't have paragraphs, and they didn't have punctuation like you and I do. So you and I say, well, look, there's a new thought developing. There's a paragraph break. Okay, or we see that there's a continuation of thought because we're still within the paragraph. They don't have that in Hebrew. So what they use are what's called discourse markers. So to carry the narrative forward, they use vavs. It looks like a hockey stick upside down. And the hockey hockey stick upside down is vav. It just simply means and. So the, the discourse will be carried forward, and he did this, and Jacob went here, and Moses said that, and it's, it's and, and, and. That's how it works. So here we have an and. Literally, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's connected to verse 24. Now, why is verse 24 important? Because it's a promise to be back in the land. So if verse 25 is universally agreed to be a new covenant promise, well, then verse 24 has to be as well. The bringing Israel into the land is a new covenant promise concept and so we should be zealous for it now let's talk about these new covenant promises he says then i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean i will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols so here's a remedy to them profaning the god's name among the nations moreover i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh now let me stop there for just real quick A heart of flesh isn't a sinful heart. It's the opposite of a heart of stone in context. A heart of stone cannot do the things that God has commanded. A heart of flesh is one that's softened and reacts to him favorably. That's the idea. Now notice verse 27. It says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Why? Because they really believe. He's going to enable them to believe. In fact, notice here, he talks about giving them a new heart. That's the very promise that goes all the way back to the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. God had promised that his people one day he would circumcise their heart. Now, why should their hearts be circumcised? Well, because they needed a heart change to be able to believe. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus is alluding to in John chapter 3 when he talks about being born again. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus himself says, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Where does he get that from? Water and spirit. Now, why is that important? Because Catholic theologians are saying it's baptism. It's baptism. Look at, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 8. And I don't have this all memorized, I'm paraphrasing, but when you look at John chapter 3, verse 8, we can eliminate baptism altogether. Why? Because if baptism is what enables people to enter the kingdom of God, as Catholic theologians contend, you and I can control that. We could set up a baptismal font and just keep bringing people. But in John chapter 3, verse 8, notice in your text, the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. He does what he wills. Well, you can't control it. You and I can control baptism, but we can't control what's being talked about in John chapter 3. What was Jesus alluding to? He's alluding to the water and the spirit of Ezekiel 36, the promise that God would give a new heart, and a new heart then would en- that would enable the people of God to trust in Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus, you're filled by the spirit, And the Spirit does for us what it says in verse 27. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's how they will no longer blaspheme the name of their God. It's all done by God's grace. How will we obey? Is it by our own power? We just claw ourselves up? No. It's done by the grace of God. That's what's being promised here. 
Now, I'm going to show you that the next chapter, chapter 37. By the way, the same promises that I just showed you in Ezekiel 36, the new covenant, you can see in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40. And it incorporates the promise to enter into the land again. But let's keep going here. I want to show you the very next chapter of Ezekiel 37. This is connected on. He says, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And who's going to be prince over them? David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Remember, when Ezekiel wrote this, David had been dead for 450 years at least. So, of course, it's a reference to the Messiah who would come from the lineage of David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a messianic reference. So you could say Messiah will be servant and their prince forever. Or, I'm sorry, the Messiah is their servant who is their prince forever. You could say that synonymously. And he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. This is the new covenant. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And what does John promise us? that we read about in Revelation 3.12. He says, I'm going to give you the name of my God, the name of my city, and a new name. We're finally going to represent God's name. We're not going to be having a name that's embarrassing to God anymore. We're going to be remedying the problem that Israel had created by being fallen humanity. You and I will have a glorified body. And so this is depicted all over the book of Revelation when we get into the New Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 3 through 4. In the New Jerusalem, it says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's exactly what John is teaching us in Revelation 3, 12 through 13. Well, let's read the promise again, all in total here. John said, he who overcomes, who is that? A believer in Jesus. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This is for everyone who believes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The remedy to the breaking of the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain, will be remedied by God, by his gracious work. You and I one day will no longer sin when we're in the new Jerusalem. And I tell you what, brothers and sisters, I hope this is a great encouragement to you because there are days I know for myself that I'm sick of myself. And where do you go when you're sick of yourself? You're sick of your own sinfulness. I was driving home from the cabin Somebody drove behind me, flashing me their, their brights. And I'm thinking, you know, here I am, bumper to bumper. What am I supposed to do? Go in the ditch so they can get by? But my sinfulness started to take over, and I thought of that James Bond car where he had oil slick and 50 caliber machine guns, right? And I thought, oh, no, here, they're just giving me the brights. And look how sinful I am. Jesus Christ took the full reproach of people upon himself on the cross, and I can't handle someone even flashing the lights. They might have only been wanting to warn you that he had a flat moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, Ed, thank you. Yes, that's how sinful I am. Maybe they're, maybe they're trying to deliver a child going to the, the hospital. I looked at their license plate. It said from Iowa, so I thought, well, if it's a child, they've got a long ways to go if they're going back to Iowa. But the point is, I'm sick of myself at times, and perhaps you are as well. What's being promised here is one day you're going to bear the name of God, not in vain, but perfectly. Let that be an encouragement for you. Let it be an encouragement that when you, when you gaff it and you know it, that there's a day that's coming when you won't, when you won't sin against your God. And you'll bring the weightiness to his name that he deserves, his kavoth, and he won't be a disappointment anymore. Brothers and sisters, I can't wait for that day. That's what Jesus is promising us here. Okay, now, with that, I've got time. We've got time to take questions, comments, answers. And if we have no discussion, we can drink water and get donuts or what have you. So. But now, with everything being said thus far, we've got another church to handle. 
We're going to be looking at the church at Laodicea the next time. And I don't know how many parts we'll do there. It might take a couple to get through those things because they're, um, it's kind of a tricky church to look at. But then we're going to be getting into chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, we start going into the throne room. And by the way, that's another reason we should see all of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowl judgments as the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne, and he's the one who opens the seals. They all come from him. So that's where we're going to be heading. We're going to be going into the throne room, and boy, is that exciting. Now, real quickly, one thing you want to look for if you're reading the book of Revelation on your own, you have, remember, seven seals that open up to seven trumpets that open up to seven bowls. So the seventh seal is opening up to the trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up to the seven bowls. Every time you come to a seven, there's a storm theophany in heaven, okay, where you see an image of God on his throne. And it's a reminder that all of these things come from him. But what's very interesting is when you get to the seventh bowl, that opens up to what? Now, think about this. Second Peter chapter 3. Remember Peter says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in verse 10. And he talks about the heavens and the earth melting with fervent heat. He links that to the day of the Lord. Well, we know in the book of Revelation, that's after the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So in a sense, when that seventh bowl opens up, it really never finishes. It goes on into eternity because the day of the Lord goes on. The day of the Lord begins at the 70th week, but the broad period goes on because forever the people of God are saved in the day of the Lord and forever the enemies of God are what? Judged. How long is damnation in the lake of fire? It's forever. So those are some things that you can be looking at as you're looking at the structure of the book itself. So we'll be talking about those things as we, we get to them. So any questions or comments about some of these things? All right. Well, I tell you what, let's pray. And we can close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the great promise that one day we will bring great glory to your name. That we would never again bring disrepute and disrespect. But when we're in the new Jerusalem, we'll be those who bring the weightiness to your name that you deserve. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would begin that now. That you give us each a desire in this life to glorify your name by turning from sin turning from the ways of the world. But Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to do this by faith. I ask Heavenly Father for my brothers and sisters here, perhaps who are going through dark things, that you'd remind them of these promises. In the days, days of discouragement, you'd remind them that you're going to accomplish for them what they could never do for themselves. We ask that these promises would enable us to persevere. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.